Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinking H2O podcast. Today on the show, we have Barbara Goldberg, who worked in the corporate world for over 25 years and, through fate, found her way into the nonprofit sector. Barbara is now the founder and CEO of Wells Bring Hope, an organization that brings safe water to the poorest country in the entire world, Niger. Their goal is to help bring sustainable water systems to the people of Niger, enabling the entire country to grow. In this episode, we will dive into some of the cultural barriers, the importance of women in the quest for water, and what is next for Wells Bring Hope in 2018. We hope you enjoy this episode, and now here's your host, Kevin Sofa. Hi, Barbara. It's Kevin Sofen calling. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Kevin? I am doing well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. How uh, is a good year? Yeah. Hey, the year is starting off strong. I mean, it's already almost halfway through. It is more than halfway through January, so we're, we're now already, you know, seeing those, uh, all those people who made those New Year's resolutions go in the gym starting to, to falter, but, but not me. Hopefully, uh, trying to stick true to the, the New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Are you in L.A. right now? Is that that's where you're yes. located, right? Yes, I am. Were you traveling at all over the New Year, or uh, have you have you been traveling at all? No, I, well, I spent last week in uh, Park City, Utah, so uh, <clears throat> that was really nice. Lovely um, weather and great time. Yeah, great can't time. can't beat Park City. I mean, I fear it's it's got great great temperate, great climate. Mm-hmm. Well, Barbara, I'd love to hear more about you, the origin story, how you got started, and how you got involved with such a wonderful charity. Well, that's a very interesting question because it does lead to a very interesting story. Uh, because I did not set out to start a nonprofit. In fact, if you would ask me, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I would have laughed in your face and said, over my dead body, I'd never <laughs> do that. What a dumb thing to do. <laughs> And I came from the for-profit world. I was a marketing consultant to Fortune 100 companies. I helped them develop and evaluate new product ideas, help develop marketing strategies to take products to market. And I worked for mega companies like Bank of America and Coca-Cola and General Motors and General Mills and 3M, et cetera, et cetera. And I had worked, you know, pretty independently over the years, and my business gradually, gradually was slowing down, which was fine for me because I love to travel. So in 2008, um, I heard a talk in, in fact, it was in my home. I also, in 1993, started uh, a salon for women. Not a beauty salon, but a gathering of women. I knew a lot of women from different areas of my life, and I had always said, oh, I'd love to just bring them all together. So I found a venue to do that, and I started that in 1993, and I'd have uh, events in my home, you know, a buffet dinner and wine and a guest speaker, and did that, you know, till my mailing list. And this was just an aside kind of fun thing. It was not a, you know, business thing. Um, but it attracted a lot of women. I had a mailing list of about 800 and 900 women. 
that just kind of grew slowly over the years. And one of the guest speakers in early 2008 was former L.A. County District Attorney Gil Garcetti. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you know anything. Do you know anything about, about Garcetti? Not the mayor. His son is the mayor. I do not. Okay. Well, Gil Garcetti was the L.A. County District Attorney during the O.J. trial. And if you had, you know, watched any of those, um, you know, multiple <laughs> series uh, that would just come out a few years ago about about um, the O.J. trial and all that, um, Gil was, you know, a major player in that. <clears throat> and so when he left office in 2000, 2000, actually, he, by his own admission, when he was thrown out of office, um, he said that was the best thing that ever happened to him. And he went with his wife as a kind of guest, sort of a sidekick, to West Africa on behalf of the Hilton Foundation. His wife had a small family, has a small family foundation, and Hilton was interested in getting her involved with water in Africa. So they said, well, let's take Gil along. He takes good photographs. <laughs> so he went. And he was so profoundly impacted by the plight of women and girls, mostly, the water crisis in West Africa, overwhelmingly. But, but he saw it as, uh, this is an issue about women and girls. Because in, in that part of the world, as in many parts of the world, what happens is that girls, women, are responsible for getting water. Women in Niger, West Africa, which is where we work exclusively, and I can tell you the why of that in a little bit, <clears throat> but they walk four to six miles a day to get water. Consequently, girls can't go to school, so the illiteracy rate is 85%, and women can't work and earn money. So he, started, he came back and he said, I'm dedicated to doing this for the rest of my life as he has been. He is now cultural ambassador for UNESCO, and he goes around the world and, and talks about the water crisis. But he started talking on a grassroots level, on a community level, <clears throat> talking to people in, the, in Southern California, and he came and spoke to a, my group, of a, and there were 50 women there that night, who sat and looked at his photos, heard his stories about West Africa, and we, I could just feel the energy in the room, you know. People were just like, what is this? I never heard of it. In a room full of well-educated, socially aware women, none of us knew anything about this, Kevin. Not a word. And so I could feel the energy. The next day I sent out an email to everyone who attended, and I said, should... Salon Forum, the name of the group, take up this cause. And I got back with yes, and many of them saying yes, and I want to be involved. So I had an instant task force of about 14 women, and we had no idea what this was going to look like. Um, and so we came together, we said, okay, let's try to drill to fund five wells in a year, in the next year, which was $30,000 at the time. 
And we wound up raising enough for 10 wells. Wow. And then in January of 2009, less than a year later, <clears throat> we went to West Africa. We went to Niger. We went to Mali. But it was Niger where we spent all of our time. And <clears throat> prior to that, you know, when, when I said to Gil, okay, well, you know, my group wants to do something. What do we do? And so we first had to select an organization to partner with to drill our wells. And he gave me a, a short list of about three organizations, and I chose, chose World Vision for a whole lot of reasons. They're the most incredible partner to have. <clears throat> and so we partnered with them, and they were drilling in West Africa in three countries. Um, they were drilling in uh, Ghana, um, Mali, and Niger. <clears throat> and I did some investigation of my own, and I said, you know, Niger is the poorest country in the world. There is some power in that, many, many, on many levels. From a marketing perspective, and remember, you know, I was a marketing consultant, I said, you know, to say to people, potential donors, we are working in the poorest country in the world, of well, has impact. And over the last 10 years that we've been doing this, that it's definitely proven to have impact. And often when I say to people, I said, you know, what's the poorest country in the world? Do you have any idea? And Haiti comes up high on the list. I said, no, Haiti's a rich country in comparison to the place where we work. Well, until a few years ago, last last year really, nobody, people don't know that Niger even exists. You know, it's, some people pronounce it Niger. Um, and yet it was a French colony, so the correct pronunciation is Niger. And they say, oh, you mean Nigeria? And I'll say, no, that's a rich country. Hmm. Niger, poorest country in the world, landlocked, democracy. Close to 20 million people, thereabouts, and growing fast. So that is where we chose to do our work. Because we felt if we can make an impact in the poorest country in the world and have that focus, well, maybe, maybe other people will look at us and say, hey, you know, they have made an impact, and maybe we should concentrate our efforts or not, or maybe we should just get involved in doing this and have some impact in the world in saving lives. So uh, we're now close to, uh, we're at 490 wells, close to 10 years later. Our goal um, for over the next few months is to get to 500 wells. Um, and that's kind of a summation, I think. That's a, a remarkable story, and it from from hair to woman uh, to now it's being your your, your passion is, is really remarkable. And and I, I actually grow up from a family. I have three sisters and a mom, and I I know the the, the true power of of woman in so many ways. And I think matriarchal matriarchal societies in a lot of ways are some a lot of ways the the best and most successful societies. And and I, I think that even when you're looking at the burden that women carry in the international realm, it, it's really 
unfortunate, but it's a true reality where mm-hmm. women are have to shoulder the burden of fetching the water, of doing all that. And it's a it's the economic drain, it's the the literacy drain. And I I think I told you, but I went to Tanzania in October where we installed a, a, a solar wind powered water treatment system, where now. There's, I mean, I have a, of a vivid memory of a picture of this one woman who was carrying a baby on her left shoulder and then carrying a five-gallon bucket, which is 40 pounds of water, on her head. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. E- every day she'd walk mm-hmm, three miles mm-hmm. both ways. And it just that, that image is just, I, I think back about it every single time whenever I'm feeling a level of, stress or anything and any any time I ever find myself about to complain I think back about that picture and that's that's mm-hmm. really the essence of what what drives me and really what in, inspires me about what what you guys are doing because a lot of it does come down to back to the the woman and empowering the woman and I think when I, I'm interested in your your thoughts is now as you've implemented some of these wells what what have you seen as sort of the some of the impact to some of these communities, like what was, what's been some of the impact of what was what life was like before the well, and then compared to what was life like was after the well, and maybe in particular to the woman. Let me give you a, uh, a part two of what I just described. Okay. Uh, on our very first trip to Niger, we realized very quickly. We realized on the very first day that we were there that water. Just drilling a well was not enough. It was a first step, and that was the easy part. The hard part was making sure that women had the ability to work and earn money once they did not have to walk for water. Fifty percent of a woman's time is is freed up when they no longer, in Niger, have no, no longer to walk for four to six miles a day. And automatically, girls go to school as soon as they, a, a well comes into a village. So there goes the, you know, literacy rate. Up, up, up. So that was, that was a big, big piece of it for us. And one of the things that... I have worked very, very hard to do with our partner, World Vision, is to implement uh, what, I, what we call a microfinance training program. We, in every village where we drill a well, and we're the only safe water cause that does this, Kevin, as part of our project, $5,600 that goes to funding a well, which, by the way, is multiplied five times, and I'll tell you that in a second. But we have said very clearly we must provide a way to educate these women. And we've set up a program with I mean, World Vision. Our partner has done this. And, and I um, insisted that they raise money to cover the cost of this program because they said, we're not funding this, you are. And they are. They're truly amazing partners. So we train women. Um, World Vision trainers come into these villages once a week, 
And women form savings groups, and they loan each other money. It's an ancient African model called the Tantin. And they practice with each other. They practice with their own money. And within four to six months, virtually everyone, I mean, it's rare that somebody doesn't experience success because it, it is so simple. So we have in place a microfinance training program. We don't give them loans initially. They have to learn how to, how to launch their own business themselves, and they get that help from, from World Vision. So that's a, a huge, huge step in our view. Um, the difference between b the before and after uh, child mortality was reduced by upwards of 70%, probably typically close to 100%, child mortality coming from contaminated water. In this year, when we first started, one out of four children would die before their fifth birthday. Now, close to 10 years later, it's one out of seven. So it's improved, yes, but we still have a long way to go. So you have that. You have girls going to school. You have women earning money. And then lots of side benefits, psychological, sociological benefits. Uh, psychologically, these women are truly transformed human beings. Imagine, you know, women who've never earned money, they've never had a voice in their community, and suddenly they are earning money. They see themselves in a whole other way. They're successful. They're confident. They, they have achieved something to improve the life of their family. What better, better creation could you give women the opportunity to do? That's what happens. And then, we even talk to, typically when we, we go to Niger, we we do a lot of interviewing, interviewing women individually in small groups and larger groups, and because um, that's my background, I was you know really good at that. So we've done a lot of that. In fact, we're sending a team next month um, to go to Niger with a uh, a very 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 professional uh, photographer, producer, um, video person. Um, and part of our team, our director of microfinance, was born in Niger. She lives here now, so she's going as well. So we, in fact, when we heard the women, you know, saying all these, you know, fabulous things about, you know, how, how they feel about themselves, we said, well, what about your husbands? How, how do they feel? Oh, they love it. They're not. So we decided to talk to the men. There's an interesting video on our YouTube channel called Sorrow and Joy. The sorrow part is, well, it's a whole other subject. But babies are not only dying from contaminated water, now they're also dying from dehydration due to climate change. So that's a whole other subject, but, which, which only emphasizes the need to get this job done quickly, to get these wells in fast, because they had they are dying at a faster rate. So the good news is that 
family relationships are transformed. The husbands, previously feeling this tremendous total burden to provide for their family, suddenly share the responsibility with their wives. They are thrilled that their wives are able to to work and earn money. And the, the whole marriage dynamic changes. It's fascinating. I mean, suddenly, the, you know, the woman is an equal partner. They share the responsibility. They're kids. They, you know, these little good, the girls look at mom and say, I want to be just like you when I grow up. I want to be able to work and earn money. And the boys say, you know, gee, I want my wife someday to be just like you, mom. It's truly life-transforming. Yeah, it, that's remarkable. And I, and I see one of the phrases on your website, it's saving lives with safe water. And I, I really agree with that and how it, it, the, the access to the safe water is, is very much the turning point, uh, not only just for saving lives, like you'd said, of reducing the mortality rates, but reinstilling this sense of purpose and actually having the opportunity to not just be subjected to being someone who has to fetch water, but you're now creating something. You are bringing value to your family. You're bringing value, not that they weren't before, but in a whole new way that's so much more meaningful. And I think that's the really important discussion that you've brought up of it's that I almost like what you said before. If installing the water system can actually almost be the easy part. I mean, yeah, it we, is the easy we part. need to raise money. Yeah, money, capital is an issue, but it's so much more of this cultural shift and transformation about understanding why clean water, understanding, all right, well, how to kind of reassimilate and reacclimate to being productive people within society. And I, I think that's such an important thing that is, is overlooked within America. It's overlooked within... I mean, a lot of the people in the world that just, that just kind of don't really acknowledge how this, the clean water is, is, is the foundation, which then allows you to, to build upon and do all these other things to be, become mm-hmm. productive in society. See, even though, you know, our tagline is saving lives with safe water, when we talk about our cause, we say we're not only saving lives, but we are transforming lives for generations to come. And that's what happens. You put an end to that downward spiral of poverty. You know what happens in in lots of places in in Africa? During the dry season, the men have to leave, Kevin. There's nothing for them to do. So they go to the capital, they go to a small city nearby, and they'll try and work and earn money. Or in the case of Niger, they previously crossed the border into Nigeria. They're very close. And yet, with all the strife from Boko Haram, from ISIS, from all that's going on, it's very, very dangerous to go into Niger, into, into Nigeria from Niger. And, and the same thing even into part, you know, parts of Mali. I mean, it's, moving around is dangerous. So... Um, the men, now when they have a well, there's enough water, typically, to grow, to do a gar- to do gardens, to grow vegetables. And so the men stay because they have something to do. They can work in the garden. They can help their wives sell produce. And it is, a, it's, 
literally saves lives when a famine comes. And the famine cycle, drought cycle, is just increasing, you know, year after year. And so it is truly, truly a, a, a force of transformation for the entire village. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to hear your, your, your notes on the gardening and and we've, we've done some projects with some partners in both Uganda and the Navajo Nation on some permaculture projects on trying to create farmable land on previously mm -hmm. desert land. And part of that's just allowing the water, the, the rain that does fall to capture it and, and then using some of the access to water for just basic farming and agriculture and, and how stuff like that helps with diet, how it helps with having a, a sense of purpose in terms of actually doing something productive and, and extracting some value out of the land. So it, it, it I mean, we could, we could spiral this conversation a hundred ways because it, it really is amazing looking at all the socioeconomic, the psychological, the economical, the really all these aspects that are impacted through the access of safe water from, from the wells that you guys implement. Let me tell you why we, I feel we are worthy of whatever money you collect. Okay. Want to hear that one? I would love to hear that one. <clears throat> well, to begin with, we give 100% of every donation to funding wealth. And you know how we do that? We have a corporate sponsor, Panda Restaurant Group, gives us our operating expenses. They've done that for the last three years, and they're doing it for another three years, moving ahead. <clears throat> we get $100,000, and that's what we live on. And we are an all-volunteer organization, except for one director of operations. Wow. That's, so we have one salary. It's not mine. <laughs> so. And what was the name um, of the organization you get? Panda? Or what? Pan, you know, Panda Express. Oh, Panda Express. Wow. Yeah. I love Panda mm -hmm. Express. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, that's a reason to love them even more. Yeah. They're, they're great people. They're incredible philanthropists. They are so rich. It's just beyond. <laughs> so, um, so they fund our operating expenses and gave us other, other support as well. So... Um, through our relationship with uh, World Vision, um, a well costs us $5,600. We send them $5,600. They drill a well. But that's not the actual cost. The cost is actually double. So World Vision matches our $5,600 instantly. Okay? Mm -hmm. We are the only safe water cause that continues working with every village for a minimum of 15 years. We are in those villages through World Vision once a month, checking not on the well because the things that we do up front, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll check that, of course, we're there. But we train the villages, and this is, this is so critical. Not, not many people do this. We do three things. First, we tell them that you have to set up a committee, and the committee has to be half men, half women. Why? Because we know that it's the women who get things done. 
And so there's a well-administration committee with half women. And then we train them on how to take care of the well. So there's that education process up front. And most of all, our goal is to have them psychologically take ownership of their, it's their well. It's not like, oh, stop, park, you know, something, no, no, we need, we need help, and we go run to Big Brother World Vision. Uh-uh. It's not how it works. Everybody in the village has to, commute, has to, to contribute a small amount of money that goes into a maintenance fund. So if they need a part, it's a simple operation. I'm sure you've seen hand pumps. Um, you know, occasionally a part might break down. They have to know where to go to get it, and they have to have the money to buy it. So all that is done. But they come once a month to the village to check up on two, two distinct areas, although interrelated, sanitation and hygiene. Okay? Now, the sanitation piece is probably the most difficult component to execute. What does that mean? Sanitation is the installation and use of latrines. One of the things that contributes, I'm sure you know this, to, uh, you know, kids dying from contaminated water, what contaminates the, the water, the ground, the groundwater is when you have open defecation. So you have to educate people to not only agree to install the latrines, but to use latrines. And you know why that's not easy? Because there's, there are taboos around. You can't defecate on someone's defecation. Well, you sure have to do that if you're going to use a latrine. So these are hard things to change. They don't happen overnight. So all those things, um, the, the sanitation piece, the hygiene piece, changing habits. Okay, you have this water. Well, what do you do with it? Well, there are certain times when you have to wash your hands, and we tell them when they're supposed to do that. We teach them how to wash the kids' faces so they don't get trachoma. You know what trachoma is? I do not. It's, it's, well, it's an it's a, it's. Is the eye it's disease? The, the result of a, a, a severe eye infection, like you, we get pink eye. Okay, yes. So you get, so you get eye drops, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's gone in a few days. Well, there are no eye drops in this year. They, I mean, 40% of the people, and that's dropping. I'm, I think maybe it's now down to about 25%, but, but they have trachoma and left untreated, and it is left untreated in a country like Niger. They become blind. So, but if you wash a child's face a few times a day with clean water, you can prevent that. that. Won't happen. Yeah, and I really I liked how I liked a lot of what you just said, but in particular, I think a lot of people overlook the fact that I mean, here it's in America, it's yeah, oh, you you wash your hands and you go to the bathroom, and that's sort of cultural. But there's a lot of things that are deep-rooted hundreds and thousands of years of practices that mm -hmm. are just cultural norms that maybe they, they, 
it, this is sort of what it is. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. make it right or safe. But so I think that's, that's one battle. And then one thing that I, I really appreciate that you said that really resonates with myself and all our listeners is that I don't really look at what we're doing necessarily exact, as 100% charity. You know, cha it's charitable, but I think it's important to have buy-in from the locals. And I think having that economic buy-in to where people are actually putting in money and they're having skin in the game allows them to have a little bit of a greater buy-in to where they have an invested interest in the well-being of the system, not only psychologically, socially, but economically. And I think that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a really important factor to where when you and, and World Vision actually leave for the time you leave, you know that when they're self-sustaining on their own that they have an invested interest to make sure that this is going to be a long-term successful project for, mm -hmm. for the entire village. Right, right. It's just having, you know, because of my experience as a marketing consultant, I've, I've learned how to not only operationally, but from a communication standpoint as well, you know, put in a structure that works. And, I mean, it, it's, it's tough work. Probably the toughest thing in the world that I've ever done is, is try to separate people from their money. It's really tough. There's a lot of competition. Yep. I mean, 10 years ago when we started, there weren't nearly as many nonprofits. You know, here in L.A., uh, when I first moved out here, you know, everybody you met was a film producer or aspired to be a film producer. And today, what is it? Oh, people want to start their own nonprofits, you know, going back to what we said, you know, at the outset of our conversation. You know, everybody wants to have their own nonprofit. It's so I'm a good person, you know. Um, that's yeah. not how we. That's not how I or we started. You know, we didn't even start a nonprofit. In <laughs> fact, this is a funny story. We had a fiscal sponsor at the very beginning because Gil Garcetti started raising money. He did a book called Water Is Key after his first trip to West Africa that was funded by the Hilton Foundation. <clears throat> so he would speak to community groups and get people to buy his book and then give it to a charity. And then he wound up giving it all to us when he joined us, formally joined us you know, as part of our organization. But he had a fiscal sponsor called the, uh, what is it, the Research Institute, the Water Institute in, uh, in Oakland. I'm blanking out on the name. Um, but they were a fiscal sponsor. They took all of our donations, so everything was tax deductible for our donors. But we didn't have to pay a penny. They took nothing from us. They were unbelievable. And then in, after two years, they said, you know, uh, this is costing us 10 grand a year to administer. <laughs> we can't do this anymore. You guys have to be your own nonprofit or do something else. So wow. you know, we were we were literally, you know, forced uh, forced into that. That's a great and, story. You know, when we when we applied to you know for a nonprofit status, and we went to you know a, an attorney who uh, specialized in that. He came back to us and he said. Your nonprofit went through faster 
than any other nonprofit I have ever set up. It went, went through in like 10 or 12 days. Wow. Just because of the work that we do. That's amazing. So, so what is... You know, uh, when we... When we I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, when we get money in our account... This is, this is funny. I met somebody from um, Morgan Stanley. This is at a networking event, and he really loved that cause. And so I met, went in and met with him and his boss, and, you know, they, essentially they wanted the Wellspring Hope account. He said, well, you know, there's not much money in our account. <laughs> Whenever we, you know, get enough money to fund a well, to now it's more like, you know, two or three wells because it's easier for World Vision to administer. But we don't, we don't keep money in our account. I mean, I, I said, in fact, Kate and I were just talking today about, you know, we were just about to fund a whole bunch of wells from our year-end campaign, which exceeded any other year-end campaign that we've ever conducted. And I said, you know, as soon as we get enough for a well, it's gone. Because I think if we wait a week or two weeks or a month, I know that kids are going to die. And when you have that hanging over your head, Kevin, knowing that, you don't leave money in an account. You don't do anything but try and fund as many wells as you can. As Keep it moving. Keep it moving. The first, the first year and a half, I, I bankrolled Wellspring Hope personally until my brother said, okay, Barbara, that's enough. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. Because every time we got close to a well, you know, I said, you know, we have to fund another well. We're getting close. We're getting close. So I paid all the expenses. And they weren't huge expenses by any means, you know, when we first started at all. But, you know, gradually. Yeah, that's very, <laughs> very noble of you. So what, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, what, what do you, what does uh, Wells Bring Hope have planned for 2018? What does 2018 bring for you in the organization? Well, this is our 10th anniversary. It's a milestone year. Wow. Congrats. So our goal is to get to 500 wells um, this year in, um, by the end of March. That's our goal. And we're at 490 wells, so we have 10 wells to go. So that, that is a big goal of ours. And we have our 10th anniversary annual fundraiser coming up in September which is going to be, uh, you know, a big event for us. And we also have a very exciting night with the Clippers on March, Friday night, March 9th. Um, the Clippers are playing Cleveland. Are you, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but um, oh, yeah. Cleveland is, you know who, LeBron James. So we got that night. It's a, it's a promotion that we're doing. The Clippers does this for charities. You pay them up front. You pay them $5,000. And in return, they give you $5,000 worth of seats. And you can choose the level of seats. So we have 34 seats. And then they gave us an additional, as you know, free for really top-notch seats. I mean, our seats are not the, 
you know, not up in the bleachers, but they're, you know, not courtside either. So, but we have these four other seats, and then they're going to give us half the proceeds of their 50-50, well, 50-50 raffle, which I've been told will more than cover our $5,000. And then, either I think in pregame or early on, they're going to show um, our video. Uh, we have a we have a great three minute video uh, one uh, six, thirty second video that the cast of Major Crimes did for us. You know that show, Major Crimes. Yep. So they're big fans. We're very very close to them, and so um, we're going to show our video and announce you know what Wellspring Hope is and does, and a few of us will be able to go onto the court and. We'll have a booth that's, uh, you know, in the in, as people come in to give them brochures and tell them about us, and so that's um, a Clippers night, which we're very excited about. We're going to um, sell those tickets at face value to our donors, and that's it. That's really now. exciting. <laughs> we have a promotion coming up with there's a, a major jewelry store chain called Kendra Scott. I don't know if you're familiar with them, um, but a mother or a girlfriend or a significant female in your life, co-worker, would know that name. They're mm-hmm. fabulous jewelry store. So we did a promotion with them last summer, and we're going to be doing it again probably in April or May. And um, that's about it for now. Awesome. Well, Barbara, it's really been a treat talking with you, and I appreciate all your time today. And if if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or, or, or reach out to you or learn about your organization, how would they go about doing that? Well, you can go to our website, wellsbringhope.org, and read about us, read what we do, watch some videos, or go to you the YouTube channel and watch some videos there. But there's a, on our website, is a, a donate button. It takes $30, just $30, to bring safe water to one person for a lifetime. That's it, $30. And if you have a rich uncle, $5,600 will fund a whole well for a village of about 1,000 people on average. And that is a well that will truly last a lifetime. And there's an endless supply of safe water underground. And that's why we use very expensive drilling machines like big oil rigs to get to the water at 250 to 300 feet, but there's an endless supply. So it is well worth the investment. No pun intended. (laughs) That's really cool. Well, I'm responsible. Is really excited to collaborate with you guys moving forward in 2018, and and hopefully through some of the sale of our artisan craft, we'd love to help fund one of these wells that are gonna gonna reach to your 500, your goal of 500. And would also like to further discuss with you uh, in the future about maybe trying to find some artisans within Niger that we can use to, to try and sell some of their craft through our platform to then use that as another means of empowering some females and then reinvesting those profits into more wells for more communities within Niger. Okay. Sounds so, great. 
Sounds like a plan. Well, it really was a treat talking with you. Thank you very much for your time today, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Kevin. It was a delight talking to you. Another war- water warrior. That's who we are. So everyone listening out there, become a water warrior. I love it. Be a water warrior today and every day. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.